We're going to enter into a time of worship now through the Word. So if you would open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. Um, I know you may think, where in the world is Isaiah? Take your Bible and open it up to about half. You're probably close to Isaiah. If you're not sure where to find it in there, just go back to the beginning of your Bible, look in your table of contents, open up there to Isaiah chapter 1. We are in our second week of a series that we're calling, What Would Jesus Undo? What Would Jesus Undo? This is not a unique idea. Other churches have used this same phrasing before. Uh, It comes from the idea, though, of those bracelets that some of you used to wear in here. Who wants to admit they used to wear a What Would Jesus Do bracelet? A few people, hands don't go too high, but they're going up. Um, we used to wear those. This is a good idea, right? What would Jesus do in any given situation? But there's also the idea of what would Jesus undo if he were to show up in our homes, in our personal lives, and in our faith family? And so we're looking at this today from the aspect of how would he change our worship? If he were to show up today, what would he change about our worship? How would that look? What would that mean for us? Would he want to change anything? And I would think that he would. Now, before we get there, we kind of have to understand what is worship. If I asked for a definition of worship from any of you, I'm sure I would get a nuanced answer from every single person. One of my favorite kind of ways of saying it over the years has been that our worship is simply our response to who God is, what he has done, and what he's promised to do. And that's a nice, succinct worship definition. I'm going to give you another couple of really good ones in a few minutes. But let me just give you a few things that worship is not. Worship, worship, you ready for this? You get the bond doing this, right? Because this is one of those words that's really hard to define. A lot of people have different ideas about what worship is. And so if we don't understand what we're talking about, how can we even talk about it? It It's very important that we define our terms. And I want you to understand what worship is not so we can talk about what worship is. And so first of all, I'm going to give you a whole list of these. You don't have to write them down. If you want these notes, hit me up. I'll send them to you. Worship isn't simply the music you play, sing, or listen to. That may be part of it, but it is not simply that. Worship is... Is not just what you experience on Sunday mornings when you gather together or what you experience in your car when you're singing to the top of your lungs to your favorite song. Although that may be worship as well. That's not merely what we mean by the biblical definition of worship. It's not just that. And worship isn't merely listening to a sermon and being moved in your heart. That may be a part of worship, but that is not a holistic understanding of what worship is. That's something that happens to you. There's no participation in that necessarily. And worship isn't just the acts of giving money or time and service. Because you can do those things and not really be worshiping the God of Scripture. Or you can do those things and your heart can be far from the Lord, even though you want to love Him. Did you know that our acts of worship, things that we call worship, in which we partake, might actually serve to condemn us? You ever thought about it like that? That the things that you and I do, that we describe as worship, could actually work against us toward our condemnation. I'll show you that in Scripture in a minute. And what you or I call worship might not even be worship in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that's a really big problem, I think. Because you could be doing a lot of things from a lot of reasons with a lot of heartfelt sincerity and it not actually be worship for what God calls worship. It's very important we understand what worship is. I'm going to say a couple other things before we get into the text. First of all, and this is a big one, hear me right, I'm going to say it a couple times, I want you to really let this sink in. God does not need our worship. He is completely self-sufficient. He did not create us out of a lack of anything. 
He did not create us because he needed some fanboys. He did not create us because he needed people to fan him and feed him grapes. He did not create us because he is in need of anything. He has perfectly been happy and full of joy, has always been and always will be and does not need us or our worship. Yet he loves so much that out of the overflow of his desire to love, he created us to lavish his love upon. He does not need our worship. We have to understand that. And actually, as we're about to see in Isaiah as an example, God might even hate our worship. I use that word because the scripture uses that word. Now this feels really heavy right now, and it should. Because if Jesus stepped into our setting right now, and he knows the heart and the mind, he knows what's going on inside of you, he knows what's going on together corporately with us, would he have been pleased in the last 30 to 40 minutes of our time together? Would he have been pleased in how you lived out your life of worship? Some would argue, and I think rightly so in some ways, that we are worshiping all the time. It's just a matter of who or what we're worshiping. That everything we do is an act of worship. Everything is a part of worshiping someone or something. It's a matter of where that worship is directed. In other words, we adore something, so we try to accomplish goals to that end. We love something or someone, so we try to do things to please that person or accomplish good graces with them. We try to love someone or something by living out a lifestyle or by not living out a lifestyle. We do those things continually. We try to please our bosses. If we're not careful, we can worship our careers, worship our mortgages, worship our hopes and dreams on this earth. We can be worshiping all those things, and God might even hate our worship as we gather here. So what do we do? Let me read Scripture and let that just speak, because all I just said, you could throw it out the window if it didn't line up with this. So Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 10. You need to go back and read the first nine verses, but not right now. In fact, I'm going to back up to verse 9 just briefly and say what Isaiah says here. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. It's almost like Isaiah got punched a little bit by the Holy Spirit, and he said, no, 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 wait a minute. You are like Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes on verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me, this is God speaking through Isaiah to his people about 700-something B.C. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, Who's required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands... I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. 
Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, God's saying to his people. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This whole book of Isaiah is what we call a prophecy. Because it not only deals with what's going on in the current time of Isaiah, it's dealing with what's going to happen in the future when the time of Isaiah is there. And what's going to happen in the future after Isaiah, when it talks about Jesus like in Isaiah 53 and about his coming. It's God giving him insight to the real world, not just the superficial or temporal, but the totality of it when he sees the hand of God working and the movement of God. And God gives him a vision, not visions, even though it's over many years. He calls it one vision from the Lord when it's all put together. And everything in this book is bookended with one major word. If you look in the very first verse, it says this, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He's giving the timeline, he's giving the setting. And then he says this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And here's the words of the Lord to start it off. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. If you go to the last page of this, he refers back to the rebellion of his people. This whole book is about rebellion. This whole book is not just about rebellion of everybody in the land, but about God's chosen people rebelling against him. And they don't even realize that they're doing it. Look with me in verse 5 and 6. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. In other words, you don't even realize, he says, that you are getting yourself slammed. You're continually being beat up. You're rebelling against me, and so you're incurring the wrath that comes with that. You don't get that you're getting beat up continually. You think everything's okay. You think it's all going to be all right. You don't get that everything happening to you is because of your rebellion. And I think that we don't see the depth. We talk about it over and over again, of how our rebellion affects everything in our lives as well. Because every act that we do is an act of worship, whether it's to the Lord or not. And every act that's not in worship of the Lord is an act of rebellion. So what does it mean? How do we do that? How do we change these things? How do we not become those people? Why is this so important for us? Let's look at it corporately for a second. I'm going to give you a quote from a guy named Ray Ortland. If you don't read him or have any of his commentaries or anything, it's a good idea to reach out and get some of those if you want to grow in your understanding of Scripture. He's a great teacher. He says, nothing is more important to the state of the world than the state of the church. God speaks first to believers so that his overflowing salvation can spread to all. The world cannot impede the expansion of salvation. You understand? The world cannot stop God's salvation. The world cannot impede the expansion of salvation. The mediocrity of the church can and does impede it. If the world is not experiencing the grace of God, the church is being untrue to its destiny. 
What the world most needs is the church so obviously saved that the, that the church is now an alternative to convert to. If Isaiah were alive today, he would say to Christian believers, the Lord saves beginning with us. Jesus echoes these words of Isaiah. You may think, we well, just talking to those guys back then. No, 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 no. Jesus echoes this. In Mark 7, 6 and on, he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's a quote straight out of Isaiah. This word, 700-something B.C., from the mid-700s to the 600s, this word is still applicable to us today. It was written to a people in that time, but the overarching message is still true for us, that many of us are worshiping a false god when we worship. Many of us are making up our own idols to worship as we worship things in our lives, and God does not want our hollow worship when we gather together or when we are alone. He does not want that. Let me give you a definition of worship from a man that I love to worship alongside. His name is Bob Coughlin. I'm going to give you two different definitions. His first definition is this. Christian worship is the response of God's redeemed people to his self-revelation that exalts God's glory in Christ, in our minds, in our affections, and in our wills. In the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that again. That's a big mouthful. Let me say it again. We'll break it down in a minute. Christian worship. That means worship that is alone, focused because of what Jesus has done for us, for those who love and know Jesus, is the response. It's our response of God's redeemed people, those who have been made alive in Christ, to his, it's our response to his self-revelation, his showing us himself through his word in the face of his son, Jesus, that exalts or lifts up God's glory in Christ in our minds, in our affections, and in our wills, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it ourselves. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit that we worship Him. Let me give you a different definition that he gives. He says them back to back in one of the articles that I read the other night. He says them multiple times in a couple of his books. Here's one of my favorites. He likes to alliterate. He likes to do that. He's kind of a pastor. You know what I mean? Pastors alliterate. You get tired of alliteration? I never do. He says, biblical worship is God's covenant people recognizing, reveling in, that means finding your utmost joy in, reveling in, and responding rightly to the glory of God in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Say it one more time. Biblical worship is God's covenant people recognizing, reveling in, and responding rightly to the glory of God in Christ. That means in Jesus, exalted on the cross, paying the price that we should pay with our lives, he paid with his life, to take on our sins so that we could be redeemed or made right, covered in his blood, washing our sins away, and to the glory of God in Christ in the power of his Holy Spirit. Let me say it like this. God doesn't want our hollow worship, brothers and sisters. He wants our entire lives. He will settle for nothing less. His son purchased nothing less on the cross. He does not want, he will not be sufficed with anything less than our entire lives. And he does not want our hollow worship. And if he could come today to us and he could speak into our hearts, he would point out our sin of which we need to repent in order to turn back to him. 
And today we're going to talk about how we get to that place we are worshiping in this way. And go back and look at verse 10. We're going to break this down for a moment. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. You remember those people, right? He's calling his chosen people the people that were trying to, men who were trying to rape other men. He's calling his chosen people the people that were trying to murder other people, really. He's saying, you are like them. Look at verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Let me just tell you, this is exactly what he prescribed in Leviticus. He said, this is what you will do. You will take a ram that is perfect without blemish. You will kill him and you will sacrifice him. You'll burn him a certain way. You will do it a certain way with the the bulls, with the goats, with the rams, with all these things. You will do these things. And now he's saying, I don't want it. So they're doing the things they've been told to do. Go to church, pray, give your tithe, be a Sunday school teacher, be on the rolls, be a good servant, show up at this event, do this thing. They're doing all these things right. Look, verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who's required of you this trampling of my courts? In other words, he's like, all I hear when you show up is the pitter-patter of your feet coming down the halls. Who's calling you in here? You're not coming here for me. The slamming of doors out in the parking lot, that's not coming here for me. Who's calling you to come in here to do this? You're not here for my glory. That's what he's saying. Bring no more vain offerings. You know what vain means? It means empty. Bring no more empty offerings. Yeah, you're given the best you've got, but it's empty because it is without your total adoration of me. It is without your love for me and its supremacy. He goes on, look, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. They were told to have incense, use incense. This is new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. These are the festivals they would do. These are the participatory great things they would do, like when we gather at the picnic and we have a great time together and when we usher in things at Christmas time as we get ready to, to worship the king on Christmas morning. He said, these things that you're doing that I've set up for you that are really good, he says, these things, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. What he means is that when you come in and your heart is full of sin and you're unrepentant and you come in in a solemn assembly like you're worshiping me, I can't endure it anymore. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm tired of it. He says, your new moons, verse 14, and your appointed feast, my soul hates. That is severe language, isn't it? They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. That sounds even like language of a father who loves his children but is tired of their junk. This is the part that is too much. The easiest way that we worship, the the most connected it feels like a lot of times, right? The The most impactful part of our relationship with God Here he speaks about this. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. You could be lifting up your prayers to the Lord and he's not listening. That could be us. That could be individuals in this room. It could be all of us together. This is intense language he's using. We know it's not just for these people there. This could be us today. 
he goes on, he says, this is like the reason, right? Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Look, I'm going to give you just three kind of points today that I'm going to break down. And the first one of these, I want us to really understand. And we, well, you'll hear this and be like, I got it. And I want you to like chew on this. This first thing is really important. Worship isn't about you. Period. Or it ceases to be worship. Now, things about you that happen toward you might move you in worship, but it's not about you. Do you understand what I'm saying? The central piece of worship, the central focus of worship is not us. And so if there are songs being sung that's all about me, 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 and it's not lifting up God and His glory, then that is not a song we should probably be worshiping to. It is about Him. Worship is about Him. It's our response to Him. It's not, it's not about what we get out of Him. It's about our response to Him for who He is and what He's done. True worship emanates from God, not from within us, by the way. We don't muster up worship. We get overwhelmed with God, and then we worship Him. This is worship. That's why when you have said before, when you hear people say things like, God, today, I just I didn't really feel it today. Those songs, they didn't really, you know, tickle my fancy. Were they about God and His glorious beauty and grace and kindness to us and Jesus? Then they were to be worshipped with. That's why worship wars that took over the 80s and 90s, crazy. It doesn't matter what we sing and how we sing, as long as it lifts up the name of Jesus and points to his goodness. It doesn't matter if it's with a piano and an organ or with guitars and drums. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's in the streets or if it's in a room with lighting that's great or if it's in a room with OR lighting like we used to have, right? It does not matter. Now, those things are good. I like them. I like instrumentation. I like the many voices, but worship isn't about us. When we gather, it's not just about singing. It's about God. True worship emanates from Him. Look, Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Jeremiah says. In other words, of course not. Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. He's kind of throwing this kind of slam on them, which could be us. You think you can just walk in and start worshiping God out of your goodness? No, that's not how it works. Worship is a response from us toward God because He has overwhelmed us with His glory. Worship emanates from a right understanding of God and of self, that we are in need. God doesn't want our hollow worship, brothers and sisters. He wants our whole lives. He doesn't want you to walk in this place, sing some songs, sit in a Sunday school room, answer a few things, and then walk away. And go do your thing and come back in here with a heart full of iniquity or sin. He doesn't want that. He wants you to look like Jesus because he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. He wants what's best for you. He wants what he made you for. He doesn't want you to settle for anything else. And so let me get to point number two. True worship always begins with repentance on our part. It always begins with repentance on our part. Now hear me right. It begins with God overwhelming us with his grace and glory, especially as he's revealed it to us in Jesus. And then our response is to see our need, that we are not able, that we are broken, 
to see our need for him to work in us and through us to change us. In fact, Psalm 51, 17 kind of is an affront to all this in Isaiah. Here's what David is told in Psalm 51, 17 that he writes down for us. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Brokenness. When's the last time you were broken over your sin, brothers and sisters? When's the last time you were broken over this community's need for Jesus? When's the last time you've been broken because you see your inabilities and you see the glory that was spent on you in Jesus? A broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, he will not despise those things. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go to the Lord. He calls for it in Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, verse 18. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Come to him. He is ready for you today. The Lord can wound you and beat you up until you turn your eyes back to him, or he can heal you. And his love for you as a father is to heal you, not wound you. But he will do whatever it takes to bring you back to himself. And worship is always a heart issue before it's a hands issue. You can come in here and raise holy hands, and Scripture does allow for that, by the way, just in case you're wondering. I know we're Baptists, but you can do that. You can come in here and dance. I'm serious, that's okay. Some of you are really freaking out about that in your head right now. It's in Scripture. Don't do it like David in his underwear or less. But you can dance. And I might even say that if you in your worship have never at least desired to bounce a little bit, maybe you're holding back if he's not overwhelmed you to that point. But worship is always a heart issue before it's a hands issue. True worship recognizes our need to be cleansed. There's a pattern here in Scripture. The pattern is that God is good and we are not. And that we, when we see God for who he is, it shows us how bad we are. And in that, when you stop and all you can do is can't get past that point that you are horrible and you want to run away from God, that's where you see where the problem is. That's where you're being wooed to the point of, uh, of being shown your, your sin, but you're not finding your hope in Jesus yet. Because when you see how deplorable we really are, when you see how bad in the heart we really are, and God has revealed himself to you and shown you his grace in Jesus, your heart, even though you see your sin, immediately turns to see the beauty of Jesus, and you begin to truly worship because you turn away from those things. So I ask you the question. Look at verse 15. Your new moons, verse 14, your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Let me ask the question. Does your, blood, does your hands have any blood on them? Think about that for a minute. Do your hands have any blood on them? If you answer no, or you can't think of any, then you need to do a little more introspection and reflection and ask the Lord to reveal your sinfulness. Let me give you some ideas. Matthew 5, 21 through 24, Jesus' words. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. doesn't mean you have to say it to their face. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, worship, right? If you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do you have any blood on your hands? Do you have the bloody hands? Because we do. Repentance is always demonstrated by brokenness. And true repentance is always accompanied by confession of that sin. To the Lord at least. And sometimes it's deemed that it has to be confessed to those around you and those to whom you have hurt. In fact, true repentance attempts to right the wrong whenever possible. You understand? You can say, oh, I did this thing, man, I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to change. Last night, I lost my cool on one of my sons. Last night, he did things he shouldn't have done. I came unglued on him a little bit. Nothing I go to jail about, but I came unglued. I was wrong. I sinned. And I can stop doing that, but if I don't make that right with him, I have not truly repented according to Scripture because repentance is about relationship, brothers and sisters. Repentance is about relationship with you and God and you and your other brothers and sisters in the lost world. It's all about relationship. So you can't just stop doing a thing and not mend the relationship and really be repentant. It does not work that way. If you have wronged someone, you have to go after that person and try to make it right as much as you can without doing more harm. Repentance attempts to right the wrong. Ray Ortland. God does not say, remove your evil deeds from before my eyes. Some translations give that impression. But the wording of the ESV is accurate and significant. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Repentance is not just removing evil deeds. It goes the second mile. And after the deeds have passed, it goes back to clean up the residual evil, the damage done. True repentance makes things right again. God is saying, if you want your worship to please me, do this. Become actively creative in compassion and justice for the people you've hurt, especially the people nobody else cares about, people who can't pay you back, people who might not thank you. Set right again the wrongs you've been tolerating. Then your worship will be beautiful to me, and then I'll be real to you again. True worship involves repentance, righting wrongs. And true worship always leads us to obedience. In 1 Samuel 15.22, Samuel says this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? In other words, does he want your activities more than your obedience? Behold, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. So listen to the Lord today. He wants us to turn back to him. He wants us to stop living for other things. He doesn't want our hollow worship. He wants us to worship him because he alone deserves the glory, because he is the best thing we could ever worship, because he is the one who will give us more than we could ever imagine as he's given us already in Jesus Christ. Because thirdly, brothers and sisters, Christian worship always centers around Jesus Christ. 
always centers around Jesus Christ because he is his self-revelation to us. The Bible reveals him to us so we can see in Christ Jesus, in his face, the glory of God. True worship revels in the blood-cleansing sacrifice of Jesus. Look back with me, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 53, I won't read it all. You should, you should memorize it. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Today, you have been wounded by these words. Find healing in Jesus. Come, talk to the Lord. Come, worship the King. Find your hope in the one who brings you healing because he's already given it to you in Christ. Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, Jesus, my servant. Do you hear that? He is our servant, brothers and sisters. The King the one is worth more than everything together. He is our servant. He has made himself low and done everything needed to bring us into the family. He has worshipped the king, his father, and has given his life to bring us into his family. He serves us, though he is the one that deserves worship. He made many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Even your hollow worship was laid on his shoulders on the cross. So do not beat yourself up, brothers and sisters. Run to the one who will wrap you in the robe of righteousness and give you a ring on your finger and kiss your face. Worship is everything. True worship exalts Jesus more than our benefits of his salvation. True worship is adoration, not merely contemplation. True worship is exaltation, not merely thanksgiving, although it includes all those things as well. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God doesn't want our hollow worship. He wants our whole lives. So right now, stand with me. Stand with me. Our band is going to come back up on the stage. And I'm going to read for you 1 Chronicles 16. We're going to see this and we're going to worship. And I'll be down here if you want somebody to pray with you, but you don't need me. I'm not an intermediary. Jesus the Christ is your intermediary. And he stood in your place on the cross and he bore your sins so that you could be brought into the family of God. You need not me or any other man or woman. You need Jesus. So run to him. And you sing to him or you pray to him. You kneel before him. If you need somebody to pray with you, over you, to talk to you, we will be here. I will be here. We will have people come if too many come for me to do it. You deal with the Lord. You talk to him. Do not just sing with hollow worship, but worship him with everything that is within you. First Chronicles 16 gives us this worship. Let it raise our hearts to adore the king. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. 
tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Let us praise the Lord together.